0: friends, we rather I ran into an audio issue this week. I assure you I'm not trapped at the bottom of the sea or phoning in from a 2006 Moto Razor. Apologies to you and also to Kung Fu Hustle, a great film you should definitely watch.
1: (laughs) You're listening to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends show each other movies and hope they don't hate them. I'm Chris Kelly.
0: I'm Bree Callahan.
1: And I am trying my best with this week's entry, Kung Fu Hustle. Bree, we've realized in discussion that there are two other movies we each <laughs> thought you thought this was. But to be clear, you don't know much about the actual film, Kung Fu Hustle.
0: I am relieved to know that I know nothing about it, because the things I thought I knew about it were unappealing. So I'm on board. Great. To give you
1: a little background, this is from writer, director, actor Stephen Chow. He has made several action comedies, often aided by special effects that will heighten what one is capable of in a fight sequence. Okay. Okay. He's not really grounded in reality, and I think that that's a plus. This is a loose movie, but I think charmingly (laughs) so. And I am very hopeful, based on what you have enjoyed in the past, that you will find things to like here, even if you don't love the whole film.
0: I love the nervous energy that you're bringing to this intro. We have now gone down such a dark path with the last few films that we are no longer bringing our favorite films to show the others so much as we are desperately trying to anchor this podcast in a sense of joy rather than like (laughs) sadness and anger.
1: (laughs) It would just be nice if we could all like something. We did real great with Moonstruck. I just want to hold on to that energy for one more goddamn week. Well, did you text
0: Poppy or what?
1: (laughs) Poppy is going to replace one or both of us.
0: Oh my God, the podcast to Poppy. It's just her speaking lovingly and charmingly about movies and the two of us sent to the dustbin of history, which I support.
1: All right, well, after the break, it's either me and Brie or Poppy and Vita talking about Kung Fu Hustle. Please join us then.
0: I'd listen to that podcast.
1: And we're back. We just watched Kung Fu Hustle, the 2004 action comedy co-produced by Beijing and Hong Kong film studios. It's about... 1940s China when Singh and his sidekick Bone try to join the Axe Gang who are trying to take over Pigsty Alley, which turns out to be populated almost exclusively by Kung Fu masters. This kicks off a turf war, a jailbreak, a continuation of a childhood romance, and several incredible fight sequences. It was directed by, co-written by, and stars Stephen Chow along with Se-Chung Lam as Bone, Hua Yen as the Landlord, Chiu Yen as the Landlady, Siu Lung Leng as the Beast, Eva Huang as Fong. Almost none of these names were mentioned in the subtitles, by the by. And several others. I'm sorry for the Alice Krieger situation with all of these names. I have a lot to say about this movie, but I'm going to save all of it. Brie Callahan, what did you think of Kung Fu Hustle? I
0: fucking loved it. Oh, thank God. (laughs) I was gonna say I have no notes, which is not true. My main note is that this movie thinks that it's about Sing and Bone and the love story. And it is not about that. It is about Donut Cooley and the tailor. And more importantly, it is about landlady and landlord. What a great cast of characters that he pulled together for this. Like, I don't know enough about this genre because it's not something I've been immersed in, but my understanding is that Stephen Chow just basically hired all these people that he, like, loved from other films and from cinema and from the stage and, like, got them together in one movie. And, like, if this is, like, a genre of movie that you love, it must just be like, whoa, 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 whoa! Like, as each new person comes on the screen because it's, like, that caliber talent.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting to go... Look through the previous credits of the cast list because I also am not familiar with a lot of them and their work. I know in particular, Landlady had retired from acting and got brought back in, and god damn it, she runs away with this movie.
0: That's what I mean. I feel a little bad for Stephen Chow, who's just like also there, but is clearly not the best Kung Fu Master, even in his Kung Fu Master movie. <laughs> I love her so much. I have no notes. I think it's very telling
1: that though I have seen this movie many times, I forget every time that the lead character's names are Sing and Bone because I don't believe they are mentioned in the film itself.
0: Bone's name is mentioned, and I think Sing's maybe is in passing, but like, that's what I mean. They're clearly not the main characters of the film. I will say a note that I have overall for the movie is that at 20 minutes in, I still didn't know who the main character was. If they wanted to make Sing the main character, they should have like leaned in that a little harder. But I think this is a situation where he had so many luminaries on screen that he wanted to give them all the appropriate level of stage time. And that meant that like he sort of undercut his own character, which is really generous, actually.
1: And while we're talking about all of the great things everyone gets to do. We do need to bring up wu Yen, who is the fight choreographer. He also did the Matrix trilogy, Kill Bill, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And his work elevates this movie in such an evident way. Like the plot is just a way to get us to the next fight scene. And every one of them is absolutely perfect.
0: Yeah, I agree. The physical choreography is really incredible. If it were me, and this might be something that's like looking back with 2020 eyes, is that some of the CGI that they put in there is pretty dated. And also is like, we've talked about this before, is that like humans ragdolling is really the problem that CGI has a lot of problems with. And so you see that here. They don't feel as connected to reality, even as it is a fantasy. It's a tough needle
1: to thread because the movie is very evidently going for a cartoonish feel. There are obvious shout-outs to cartoon actions like a flower pot falling on someone's head. But you're right that there is just enough Uncanny Valley with a lot of the more computery special effects that just don't land as hard now as they would maybe at the time when you're just not used to seeing as much of that.
0: Yeah, I guess I don't mean, like, the effects of landlady chasing, I, think, saying, I can't even remember who she's chasing, where their legs are going super fast, like that cartoonish element, I think is really fun. I mean, more things that like maybe five years previous would have been more expensive to do with computers. But by 2004, if you're throwing a guy through a window, sometimes it's easier to CGI that. And I thought so many of the practical effects of them moving around the space were so thrilling. It wasn't bad. It was just like, It took me out of the fantasy a little bit, if that makes sense.
1: I totally get it. So I don't know how to structure talk about this movie without just going over all the things that I love about it. I guess it makes the most sense to try and vaguely go through the plot. But I think even the movie is only 50-50 on its own plot. So we'll see how we go. That sounds appropriate to me. (laughs) We start off introducing the Axe Gang in, I think, a really effective way by just having the entire police station listening to the sounds of a brutal fight, I love that opening tracking shot that just goes through everyone's expressions. I think it tells you kind of exactly what you're in for with this movie of like, there's gonna be fights, but it's also very stylized. It's also got a solid sense of humor. Like that opening scene really brings me in every time.
0: Yeah, for me as a first time viewer, I wasn't really knowing what to expect. I saw from the rental screen that it was a comedy. So I was like, okay, this probably isn't going to be too serious. But there are some real stakes even once you get outside the police station to the crocodile gang fighting against the axe gang. I mean, that man loses a whole ass leg. And then that girl does get shotgunned from behind. So it's not like it's starts out like comedy comedy it's sort of like this movie starts at a zero and it puts its foot on the gas in terms of like kung fu and then by the end it's also just like and a whole bunch of like zany acme comedy
1: it is very menacing to think about a bunch of people attacking you with axes axes are not a humorous not that there are humorous weapons but axes in particular seem like a really unfunny way to die
0: I don't know, a wiffle bat's a pretty humorous weapon.
1: Yeah, and they do all have Abe Lincoln hats, which does <laughs> undercut the seriousness <laughs> a touch.
0: Yeah, I, that's what I'm saying, is that this movie pairs a lot of very serious martial arts action with like a Warner Brothers script, and the end result is much more than I would have expected.
1: <laughs> and everyone here knows exactly what they're doing, and... That is never clearer than when we get to Pigsty Alley and we just get to meet every character who is going to end up kicking someone's ass later in the film.
0: I loved the design of Pigsty, which I keep pronouncing like Bedsty Um, for things that will only be humorous to our New York
1: listeners. Are Pigsty and Bedsty not pronounced the same?
0: Well, instead of like Pigsty, I pronounce it like you know, it's like you don't pronounce it like bedsty. It's like bedsty. There's like a there's a beat in there. Bedsty. But isn't bedsty like Bedford Stuyvesant or something? Yes. The way they talk about pigsty, and this makes it seem like pigsty is short for something.
1: Pigford Stuyvesant. Yes. Pig- <laughs>
0: Yes. So Pickford Stuyvesant. Um But I was, <laughs> what I was actually trying to talk about was the design of the neighborhood. I guess that was one of the first things that they worked out. I read the Wikipedia today. And that I think Stephen Chow actually like designed what the neighborhood was going to look like and sort of the arena for all the fights. And you get the characterization and you also get that like, great shots establishing the neighborhood so that you understand where everything is. And that's going to be so critical for the fights to come. It's just great design work as well.
1: Yeah, there's clearly so much skill that went into the making of this movie. It's funny because when I was watching it and thinking about how you would experience it, I was like, you know, in some ways, this is a very long kiss goodnight situation. But the clear difference is that the long kiss goodnight is very accidentally good, And this is very clearly good on purpose. Everyone's doing what they think they're doing.
0: Yeah, everyone is in on the joke here.
1: (laughs) So, like, you know that you're going to love, like, all of these characters that get introduced, even though I really obviously have a lot of problems with how the dressmaker is portrayed.
0: It's a long lean into extra fae. It's
1: very stereotypical. I guess it's not miles away from how one might see a gay best friend portrayed in, like, a U.S. sitcom in the 90s. So I can't lean too hard on, like, well, this is just homophobic culture from 2004 in Hong Kong, because, like, A, I have no idea what the culture in Hong Kong in 2004 was like, but B, it is very similar to portrayals that we saw not a great deal earlier in the U.S., and they do the faux empowerment thing of, yes, we made fun of this character for the first 10 minutes, but then he beat someone up. So he is strong, even though he is still the gayest gay that ever gayed.
0: <laughs> this is a little bit of a charade situation where I feel like, and you may disagree, that like we are finally getting so far away from those kind of portrayals being, <laughs> they're still objectionable, but there's less... Sting to them because it seems just silly now. And so, you know, again, your mileage may vary as someone who that like portrayal impacts. But my hope is that as we continue to get further and further away from them, that like you will feel the same way about that kind of a portrayal that I feel about like Reggie being a ninny in charade. In the same way that like I didn't love landlord saying to that girl, my, how you've grown now, let me give you a physical exam. But it's just like, all right, you're gross noted yeah that's the thing is that there are
1: a lot of characters who are let's say problematic in a lot of ways i mean we call landlady fat like a hundred times and she's just not a large woman but also even if she was maybe that wouldn't be her defining feature like she's the coolest person in the world and all we're talking about is the fat lady like come on
0: Yeah, I definitely obviously have a note that says we can stop calling this regular sized woman fat just about any time. (laughs) I could also take a quibble with the fact that, like, her main fighting skill is screaming. But on the other hand, I have no notes. (laughs) Like, because in the same way that they treat Taylor, they give both of them these like, quote unquote, unappealing qualities, but then they're also like the best fighters in the world. So like what people think about how they're acting or even how they're portrayed, the sting of that again is like taken a little bit out of the fact that like they have real skills and they can kick your ass if you look at them wrong.
1: And so much of the storytelling is done specifically through fighting styles, like things like The relationship between Landlady and Landlord, they fight with each other in conversational scenes, and they are somewhat at each other's throats. But when they fight together, they are a unit. And especially, there are multiple instances where Landlord just stands behind Landlady and trusts that, like, she has this. And I think their relationship is actually sold more through the fight scenes than it is through any time they interact verbally.
0: Yeah, I didn't have a sense of whether or not these two people and also Beast, and I guess also eventually Sing, it wasn't clear if they had extended lives because Landlord and Landlady also say that they are actually Paris and Helen of Troy, which I don't know if that was a translation that was done for Western audiences, or if that was something that's in the original film. But I also wasn't sure if that maybe made them not people who like lived in 1940s, but had lived for hundreds of years or something.
1: Yeah, the script doesn't do a lot of exploring of its characters in general. That line always trips me up a little bit because, yeah, I don't know what to make of it, especially because they do reference the specific age of their son, and then very near the end, they casually hypothesize that Sing is about the same age as their son would have been, but again, if all of them are otherworldly entities who don't really age. Is there a timeline worth following there? Even the characters themselves are like, I mean, not really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because there are elements of magic involved, it wasn't clear to me if we were supposed to view all Kung Fu masters and or master killers as magical creatures versus like humans. But everybody in... Pink Stye is also, like, pretty good at fighting and, like, has weird, like, carnival bodies. I just have a note that says, fuck yeah, onion bitch, hit his ass. That woman's
1: performance is one of my favorites in the movie because she (laughs) remains with a totally benign smile throughout. Like, she smiles as though she has shaken his hand, but she has, in fact, caused him to cough up blood.
0: (laughs) So the whole town seems populated with either those who are freakishly tall or freakishly built or have onions of death. So the whole thing is kind of this fun fantasy, but like, it's not clear to me how all of these people came together. That's overthinking the movie. That's not really what the movie is concerned with. The movie is concerned with, do you want to meet some fun, rowdy characters? And also here comes another fight scene. And the fight scenes
1: are across the board. So good. I can't tell you the excitement I feel when the first group of three men fighting absolutely everybody Mm -hmm. in the world, because each of them gets their own big entrance. Like the coolie gets his like, I'm going to kick everyone into the sun. Right. And then dressmaker gets his rings on. And every time I'm like, this is it. My people have risen. Like (laughs) as much as I shouldn't relate
0: To the dressmaker, I'm like, yes, faggots kick ass. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt about Onion Lady. (laughs) They're like, you're just a farmer. And I was like, get him.
1: (laughs) And then the like noodle maker guy. Whose
0: name is Donut.
1: Though noodle would have been the obvious choice. But Hmm. regardless, he jumps in with his staff and he's killing it. That fight is so energizing. I just want to clap every time it happens.
0: Well, it's because it's not just one style of fighting, like they're using unique implements and they each use a different thing and it reacts in a different way. So you're always getting a different type of beating somebody up. It's not just like punch, 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 punch. It's like punch, kick a long bamboo rolling pin to the head, and then a bunch of other stuff. I I do also love Taylor's rings. It's such a fun, delightful choice to have him have these arm implements that don't seem like they could possibly do anything. And yet they do.
1: (laughs) And that's kind of the strength of the fight choreography in general, is that in every fight, you know what each person's strength and weakness is, and you can see them strategizing with each other about what the combination of their strengths and weaknesses does. And so there's a logic to who wins and loses the fight based on the storytelling of the choreography. It's really impressively done.
0: Even a lot of the cinematography, it feels to me like a lot of American video games after this like stole a bunch of stuff from it. Like the initial scene in the police station feels so much to me like dishonored where you like get that pan up to like try to plan your route or even like a Bioshock Infinite or something like that. I really feel like there's a lot of sampling back and forth in like a bunch of the choreography and especially into video games. I
1: mean, I know that we think of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as like the big influential Chinese fight movie. Mm -hmm. And I know that Kung Fu Hustle really didn't have as much mainstream popularity in the States, but it is considered a favorite by a lot of people. I know like Bill Murray, for instance, is like a huge fan of this movie in particular. I think anyone who watches this would be. And if I were creating something, I would be incredibly tempted to steal from this because it is essentially perfect
0: (laughs) well it's cool because i'm glad that you mentioned the other things that the choreographer had worked on because i'm not sure that i've ever seen a series of films where you could see the influence of a choreographer themselves like on the product this feels so much like the matrix like it feels so much like crouching tiger hidden dragon and like you see like the vernacular it's, you know, it'd be, like, how Alan Silvestri keeps popping up here, or John Williams. Like, you know a John Williams score when you hear one, and yet they're always different, but you can, like, hear the references between them, and that, like, enriches the experience of the film. Totally. Honestly, he's, like,
1: Fosse, you know? Yeah. Like, you know a Fosse dance.
0: <laughs> I like that I, was like, explained it with two different, like, musicians, and you're like, or, like, a different choreographer. <laughs>
1: I'm that kind of gay.
0: (laughs) I'm tapped into dance, obviously. Also, quick shout out to the knees of all the older gentlemen in this movie. I can't move that way. And I'm like 20 years younger than them. So good for them. Protect your knees, everybody. It's very important.
1: And I do think as much as this movie doesn't always have a lot of respect for its characters, there is a clear respect for the actors and the amazing things that they get to do. Like these people are delivering. And I love that so many of the characters are not young because Mm -hmm. that's not important.
0: And in fact, they seem to have reverence because they have taken the time to develop their skills. Like these are Kung Fu masters and Only one of them can be metamorphosized overnight through a series of beatings in order to, like, become the one. But there really are a lot of similarities with The Matrix that is pretty interesting and maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. I don't
1: don't really remember The Matrix enough. Other than knowing that there's the one, I don't know that I have a lot of, like depth there to discuss the plot similarities
0: well it kind of ends the same like the third matrix movie which i only saw once in the theaters and hated so i never saw again but my memory of it is that he's like almost defeated and then he sees like a big fucking basically burning cross and then like gets back in the fight and that's essentially what happens here like sing rises up sees the buddha and then like reinvigorates and uses a new move to like go back in and fight the big bad
1: and there are other... I mean, I know The Matrix has a scene where Keanu Reeves fights a million copies of Hugo Weaving, and that's very reminiscent of all of the Axe gang in the exact same suit looking essentially like clones. Like, I think that there is definite influence there.
0: i, I, I sorry, I just want to... Make sure that I'm not suggesting that, like, my guess is that the Wachowski sisters, like, took a lot of stuff from Chinese cinema in order to make The Matrix. Probably not the other way around because Kung Fu Hustle is leaning so hard into, like, the history of Chinese cinema and Kung Fu movies throughout. Though this movie also
1: does blatantly borrow from a lot of things. For instance, Mm -hmm. I didn't know this without reading it, but when Donut dies, he says his final line in English, and it is apparently a line from The Untouchables when another major character dies. Like, it's just a direct (laughs) lift. So Kung Fu Hustle is actively stealing from other movies that Stephen Chow just happens to like.
0: Oh, never mind. I'm totally into it. For what it's worth, I was in reading subtitles mode, which means I, like, wasn't in listening mode. And so when they were like, why aren't you speaking Chinese? I was just like, what? So I rolled it back and I listened to it again. And I was like, oh, yeah, he is speaking English.
1: As we've discussed, this movie doesn't care that much about the plot that it has set out. So there is, (laughs) I guess, a romance. Let's talk about Sing and... What's her name? Apparently her name is Fong, according to the credits. I'm not sure that's ever said in the subtitles. Where to begin? Brian, do you have thoughts?
0: I mean... We joke a lot in this podcast about unearned romantic relationships, but like this one takes the cake or the lollipop, I suppose. Oh, man. Yeah. He literally
1: writes a character who cannot speak. I know. So no need to wonder what that lady's going to say. The answer is absolutely nothing. She is going to hold on to a lollipop for what seems like too long a time. <laughs>
0: and then offers it back to him like that might be something you want (laughs) the relationship between the two of them was so tangential that when he was like really injured and he drew I guess what was the lollipop I was like oh he's drawn like a circle thing with a line like I didn't even (laughs) put it together because it was so I don't know if the studio was like hey you gotta have a romantic element to this movie or what but like It could not have felt more tacked on. Like, as much as I was not interested in what Sing and Bone were up to, I certainly was not interested in what Sing and Fong were up to. And tellingly, though at the end the two of them are
1: sort of positioned as maybe getting together, it's also done in such an opaque way where they look at each other, and then they both turn into children and run into a candy store, and I guess that means
0: something? i mean true love probably but like the movie also took the time to like show us that scene i was like no 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 i i i get the reference but like i still don't care can we get landlady back on the screen
1: i definitely don't want to see that little boy peed on anymore i feel very (sighs) bad about that
0: yeah that was something that was that was pretty grim i'm not gonna lie
1: Way too much. We can't have our lead characters kiss, but we can have children urinate on one another endlessly.
0: It wasn't endless, but it did feel like a long time, I'll grant you that.
1: To your point, it took away from Landlady, clearly the greatest character in cinema history.
0: I mean, all of my notes about her are in all caps, (laughs) aside from Onion Bitch, who I definitely love so much. Um I do have a note from early on that says so on the one hand I don't love that landlady treats poor people badly on the other hand <laughs> and then nothing after that <laughs> because Landlord is also amazing. Like the two of them are great. Both Landlord and Landlady attended school for Peking Opera. So they come from this sort of very theatrical dance background as well. And so like, that's really fun to see the two of them together, because I think their movement styles really meld well together. And I think
1: that's part of what makes this movie successful on a global scale is that You don't need a lot of verbiage. Like, it's helpful to have the subtitles, but this is a story that is told kinetically. And there's a lot of silent moments and a lot of storytelling through body positioning and a sort of tableau. So you can appreciate most of what's happening just by looking at it.
0: I did also love the Harpists, That is such a fun element, too, where they bring this instrument into it and the two of them are working collaboratively. And that's sort of like the rolling pin, right? Is that like there are always just different elements that are being brought in to keep like the fights fresh. Because like one of the things that happens in like even something like a Kill Bill, like a movie that's obviously an homage to like these kinds of films In America is that like, you kind of just wind up get like fight, 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 gun, gun, gun. And like, that's not as interesting as watching these people like use implements that either they're really well fashioned with, or things that are to hand, right? Like, that's why I like the action sequences in Atomic Blonde, because she's always switching it up by like, grabbing something and utilizing it right away.
1: Yeah, there's a real element of the unexpected in every fight. You never know exactly what's going to come. And once it happens, it tends to make perfect sense. But you don't necessarily think upon seeing someone roll out dough with that long rolling pin that like, oh, he's going to break guns with that.
0: Speaking of the ability to smash guns with a rolling pin, why... Is Landlady trying to send away their three best fighters after the Axe Gang comes because Sing has fucked up and accidentally blown up that guy's hat? I get that she definitely wants to like punish Sing for what he did, but like, wouldn't you want to keep those guys on side? If she was like sending away Onion Lady, Like, I wouldn't understand either. I do have a note about that, that it does not make
1: a ton of sense. And even the other people in Pigsty Alley are like, hey- I do sort of get that, like, maybe she thinks the Axe Gang will chase those dudes personally, which they also do. Hmm. I always wonder, I know that the translation for the subtitles is apparently remarkably different from the translation for the dubbed version. As someone who speaks no Chinese, I couldn't tell you what the original script says. Right. So I imagine that there is at least some plot detail or plot logic that we don't get but i also think there is limited plot logic here because we just want to see another fight
0: that is a question that i had i mean translation is always a really difficult thing to do and that was why i raised the question about helen of troy and paris because like they're translating for a western audience so they might have also been referencing someone who is like an uh, analog in Chinese culture that like wouldn't translate for a mostly American and Western audience. So I have to guess there are some other things like that that they've done a cultural translation as well as a language translation. Exactly. And
1: it would require more research than I am willing to do to find that out. But I'm sure someone's written something on that that maybe one day I'll read, but Probably not because I'm not very good at this job, which isn't a job because no one's paying me.
0: (laughs) I'll update y'all next week. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to the plot. Landlady has done one kind of smart thing, which she seems to be keeping a stash of cobras at the entrances to Pigsty.
1: That scene makes me laugh so fucking hard. All the ways that poor Stephen Chow gets
0: stabbed. I would have liked a little bit more information about that. Like, has she woven some kind of a spell on pigsty so that like knives can't be thrown or what's going on? I will say I learned a lot about Taiwanese and Chinese cobras. So that was a real thrill for me because I got to do some research on Wikipedia. And like, I'll say they're just at the border of the cobra's range, but probably still within reach.
1: God, I was so sure that (laughs) I would find a movie that did not involve research for you. I don't know why I was that optimistic.
0: They eat mostly frogs and rats.
1: Well, I imagine that those are problems that you would have living in a shitty alley. So I kind of get why you'd keep them around then.
0: I guess more like I was surprised that she was keeping them all in one cage. I wondered if she wasn't like getting them ready to like set as traps for when the axe gang came back.
1: God only knows. It doesn't seem like she needs the cobras. She's pretty good on her own. Those are just her everyday snakes. Those are just around for fun. I do wish, watching this movie, that there was more than one woman cast as a master. We do get the farmer early on who has one hell of a punch, Uh but she's really just there for one joke and we never see her again. Yeah. All of the true masters are men except for landlady. I wouldn't be mad at more diversity among the ancient master pavilion.
0: You get one woman and one gay. (laughs) Those are the rules.
1: (laughs) And I love the one woman and one gay so deeply.
0: Yeah, then it's fine. I gotta tell you, I expected no women. So (laughs) if you keep your expectations real low, then you can jump over the bar. I mean, yes, if we want to go through the math of it, we've got one really strong farmer. We've got one lady whose superpower is screaming and one totally silent woman. Overall, it's a little bit of a mix. I'm willing to forgive it because I enjoyed Landlady's performance so much. But like, I think the movie would be improved with the deletion of Fung. (laughs) Because like, that character is around to just be pretty. And in fact, I, I, I did read that she chose not to speak apparently so as to let her like body movements do the acting and talking for her, and I was just like, ma'am, you have done yourself a disservice here. I did not read that. That is a
1: wild detail. I can't imagine why you would get cast in a movie and then ask for fewer lines, but... Can
0: you please take all my lines out? Thanks. I mean, I've
1: dated a few actors who I wish had that kind of humility, but... (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine it's a good career move. Then again, apparently her career really took off after this film, so good for her. Maybe she made the right calculation and I'm the idiot. It's usually true that I'm the idiot.
0: Yeah, that is, I mean, it's not untrue. Um, Yeah, she was apparently chosen from over 8,000 women, quick Wikipedia edit, more than, And, sorry, (laughs) this is according to Wikipedia. She chose to have no dialogue in the film so that she could stand out with only her body gestures. Okay.
1: I don't know if it stood out, but...
0: (laughs) I mean, in the sense that it slowed the plot to a complete stop every time that the romantic subplot got involved. Yes, it did stand out. Like you said, it's not
1: just her. It's really that Sing and Fong are both oddly superfluous to the movie that they are ostensibly main characters in.
0: Yeah, I kept being like, who is this character? Like, how is he involved with these people? Like, why did he come to a slum to rob the barber? There's really no
1: reason other than he wanted to show Bones' chest jiggling in as many shots as possible for just that first bit.
0: I also don't know why they live in a traffic signal. I, that's... (laughs) I was surprised by the the size and shape of the traffic signal, to be perfectly honest. I, I couldn't believe you could fit, well, Bone in there for a start, as well as another human. It's funny because they reference the traffic signal
1: early on, and then it becomes kind of a plot point that Stephen Chow goes back there to regenerate because he has a superpower that he doesn't know about. They also go to the trouble of establishing that he doesn't remember that he's done that, but that never comes back. It is a one-line reference of I don't remember, and then we just move on because, again, we don't really care about sing.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I think it is supposed to be that every time he gets hurt, he gets stronger, and then eventually he gets so hurt that he totally metamorphosizes. Yeah, there's also... The weird wrinkle that he was sold a
1: pamphlet when he was a child that may or may not have anything to do with anything. It doesn't seem like it was really important. On the other hand, it might be incredibly important. No details.
0: I will say that the funniest line in the movie for me was Stephen Chow saying, I was studying to be a doctor or a lawyer, but this was world peace and then just drops his head like he wasn't able to do that anymore. A very funny translation, and I assume like pretty close to what he was actually saying, because it just felt very like defeated about the fact that he was going to do something good, but what are you going to do when world peace is on the line?
1: Yeah, he is so charming. Like, even when he's not doing anything important in this film... I just love watching him, he's got a really expressive face, he has a real lanky looseness in his comedy, his final fight scene is really good, even if he is maybe outshone by some of his elders, and he wrote and directed this shit, like, he's just really good at what he does, clearly.
0: Yeah, whatever the German is for swagger without seeming like a dick about it, like, he's got that, like, level of charisma where you just kind of, like, want to watch him walk. I wish that he had made Sing more of a presence because I think he's got a good eye for comedy. And I think he is a good comedic actor as well. Again, I think it was generous of him to like give all of that to the other characters. But like I said, 20 minutes in, I wasn't sure who the main character of this movie was and who I was supposed to be rooting for. And so that, I think, was an error where he could have like inserted himself a little bit more into the beginning of the film. So, we've talked a lot about
1: really funny things. An oddly very serious part of this movie is Su Lung Lang as the beast, who is pretty scary?
0: Yeah, because he just looks like a regular dude who can apparently just destroy you and also cheats and uses poison. So, yeah, he's a pretty scary dude. It's funny that they bother to
1: make him a cheater. Because I don't think I've ever seen a more effective introduction of why this person is a badass than when he aims a gun at his own head and stops the bullet. (laughs) That is perhaps the best scripting of don't fuck with this man that I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, pretty much. One of the things I like about this movie is the the costuming is also really good. Like they do a great job later with Beast and Landlady and Landlord. And they set him up as a guy who's just wearing a singlet and I think somebody describes like crappy flip-flops. Then he's just such a menacing figure. What I liked about this movie was that it was constantly like flipping my expectations for like what was going to happen next, and it was really fun.
1: Yeah, he constantly does the opposite of what you'd expect, like inviting someone to hit him and then just being like, no, hit me again. That wasn't hard enough. It's almost worse when he doesn't fight back. You're like, no, you should hit that guy back. And he's like, I don't even care.
0: Because he's not participating in like the honor rules that define this genre of fighting, which is that like, if you're going to fight with somebody, you fight back and you fight fair. And so like later when he doesn't honor the surrender rules with landlord and landlady, like it feels like a real betrayal because everything else in this movie has been like, okay, you and me, we're going to fight or you versus a group of people, we're going to fight. And you feel like you know what the rules are. And then he completely flips them on their head. I do
1: have questions about where he got that incredibly elaborate system of
0: poison flowers, which he seems to have several of. I feel like the guards at the prison should maybe have taken that off him.
1: Yeah, because it's not as though he has had time to go make them or commission someone else to
0: do that. They're clearly something that he has on hand. Listen, you're just lucky that Singh doesn't come back with three gold-plated lollipops and, like, that becomes, like, his cheating avatar. I
1: actually wouldn't care if that happened. Like, I'm so (laughs) bought in with everything that this movie does that it kind of doesn't matter. Like, it has earned my trust by that point, if he was shot into the air and came back as an actual butterfly, sure, great, let's go with it.
0: It could have happened. I do have a note that says, oh, the fucking butterfly. Like, I was wondering when that was going to come back into our orbit. It's funny that you talk about trust because, like, this feels like the kind of movie that I shouldn't trust. Like, it's got so many, like, Looney Tunes, Acme things. Like, it somehow takes all these pieces that feel very Tired out, like a Roadrunner Wiley Coyote vibe and turns them into something like new and magical. And it's just fucking fun.
1: There are so many moments that make me laugh. I will tell you, any time that I am in a bad mood, I watch the scene where Landlady magically appears in the backseat of the Axe Gang boss's car.
0: Oh my god, did she not win an Oscar for that? I didn't go back to check 2004 Oscars, but she should have. It is
1: the most perfect scene in cinema history. I will not be taking notes on that. There's something about her perfectly deadpan expression in the backseat of that car where it's just never been clearer who's in charge of a situation.
0: You alluded earlier to the fact that she hadn't been in a movie for 15 years or something. I guess she came with a friend to an audition for this movie for her part that she wound up getting. And she was standing in the back with like a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and a sarcastic look on her face. And he was like, her, this lady (laughs) right here. She should be in everything. So I'm totally on board. The cigarette
1: hanging out of her mouth is the most perfect character detail. I love when she is crying and kissing her husband and the cigarette remains in
0: her mouth. (laughs) Yes. And also like, his hair barrettes, because he (laughs) needs to flatten his hair. Love it. I think the level of detail and specificity is what keeps this from going off the rails and being just like a silly Looney Tunes movie is that there are so many pieces that look like everyday life. And like, that these characters feel so lived in even the detail of landlady continually beating up her husband because he always has like fucking lipstick on his face and you just see her like lipstick again and then you hear like the pummeling it's just it's it's so fun and you feel like you know these people
1: yeah there's a real groundedness oddly to everyone but also because everyone does really exceptional work and because the fight scenes Seem so expert, you are willing to accept more lunacy and cartoonishness. Like, if they had all fucked up all the fights, then all the cartoon stuff would seem ridiculous. But I'll go along with it if you are this good at what you do.
0: Yeah, it earns your suspension of disbelief. The trouble
1: with proposing a movie that I figured we would both like is that I don't have a lot to say other than. Good God, I liked so much of this.
0: Yeah, big same. I do have a note that says, Sir, leave that hawk alone right towards the end, where it does seem like he's going to screw around with the two birds as he goes up to see the Buddha. I I didn't want him to fuck with the hawk. I wonder if there
1: are things that culturally don't resonate with me, like if, for instance, there's something about, like, you have to fly higher than an eagle to see the Buddha or some shit.
0: Certainly to get the wind beneath your wings. I...
1: (laughs) If he had ascended into the sky and seen Bet fucking Midler, then this would absolutely be my favorite movie of all time without competition.
0: I mean, yeah, I think that's what is magical about this movie is that my guess is that I missed probably about 40 to 60 percent of what this movie was talking to me about because, like, I don't have the specific cultural references one of the things about being an American is that like that doesn't usually happen for you because like most movies are pitched at you. Like I think this is the first movie that we've watched that is not pitched at a Western audience and an American audience, even when it has not been an American film. Like we watched Lifeless Ordinary, which is a British movie, but it's obviously pitched at Americans. And we've watched Flight of the Navigator, which is a Norwegian movie set in Fort Lauderdale. I like getting to watch cinema that like isn't for me, but like still invites me in.
1: Yeah, and it's a shame that this isn't a more popular film because it is, again, just an incredible achievement in terms of what it does. I find it hard to imagine anyone not being at least mildly entertained by what's happening on the screen.
0: It's a lot of entertainment for 10 bucks or whatever the hell you would have had to pay to see it in the cinemas at that time. $7.50 maybe. It's what a value. Yes, I highly
1: recommend everyone watch this. I've also seen Shaolin Soccer a couple times. So if you like Stephen Chow's work, go ahead and dive into that one as well. I'm not familiar with his other creations, but I bet they're all delightful.
0: I've seen a strange amount of, like, Chinese drama, but, like, have not gotten to see as many, like, fun martial arts and kung fu movies. I'm definitely going to watch more of them having seen this one because, like, The level of just boisterous fun here was really appealing.
1: So it seems like we essentially don't even need to do final thoughts because we kind of just did them.
0: Yeah, I appreciate any opportunity to make this podcast shorter. (laughs) So everyone, (laughs) we've watched
1: the movie. You better go watch this movie. I can't imagine after hearing us discuss it why you wouldn't. And all that's left is to pick another movie. And Brie, that's where I throw to you.
0: So you and I off mic have been talking a lot about Rita Moreno this week because the new trailer for West Side Story just dropped. And I don't know if you know that a very young Rita Moreno is in Singing in the Rain.
1: I don't think I did know that. But (laughs) I'm glad to hear that she is because it sounds like that's the movie you're picking.
0: Oh, yeah. uh, Spoiler alert. We are going to watch 1952's Singing in the Rain, where it's hard to tell usually because Rita Moreno is ageless, but she is actually very young in this movie. Um, She doesn't have a big part. Uh, But you know who does have a big part? Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor. And we will catch up with you guys next week, Singing in the Rain together, I guess. Great. See you then. Bye. Bye.
1: You're coming hard for Ray Harryhausen, which I think people are really going to be upset about.